This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This is A Voice Series 6, Episode 4. This is the podcast where we get vocal about voice. And she's back. Oh, no, done. No, it's all wrong. You threw me then. You threw me then <laughs> with a different word. I might even keep this in. Could be here all night. Who knows? Okay. okay. <laughs> and she's back. <laughs> Welcome back, Petra. Welcome back, Petra. Petra Bozinski, cognitive behavioural therapist, somatic vocal coach, therapist, voice coach, all sorts. We have had such a good, such a good episode from last time. We thought we'd bring you back and do some more. Hmm. I'm very interested in your distinction between trauma and emotional discomfort. And I'm, again, yeah. really clear that people have emotional discomfort sometimes every day, yep. quite often every day. Me crying <laughs> this morning when I read the post yeah. is not trauma. Yeah. That's it. Um, it's climb... not comfortable either, although no. sometimes it can be cathartic, of course. Yeah, but... yeah. yeah. A, a client may be coming in and singing a sad song and then crying because recently they lost a parent. Mm. It's not necessarily trauma no it's just normal human experience and we need to normalize that and we need to hold the space for that but trauma is something else entirely it affects you on a daily basis it's sort of uh, people will have flashbacks they will be stuck in certain avoidance patterns they will get panic attacks whatever and i would say that um I don't want to say the majority of people who now sort of self-diagnose as being traumatized, but a reasonable amount of them don't have these or don't fulfill these criteria. Mm -hmm. And when you say stuff like that, um, it's sort of immediately is being held against you for not being empathetic or for minimizing someone's experience that's not minimizing someone's experience because you're not helping people with their resilience by sort of constantly wrapping them in cotton wool and sort of assuming that every tiny bit of emotional distress is traumatic and people you know need to What's learn the distinction. What's yeah. interesting yeah. about this is that if you like, for somebody who has experienced a wide range of people with a wide range of emotions, mm. what you're doing is you're actually being accurate putting their level of discomfort on a on a scale that says this is a level of discomfort and it's absolutely I get that you're experiencing it and, and I've, I can validate that and it isn't this level because I have worked with these people at this level mm. and therefore there it just doesn't match what you're saying the label that you've given it is not accurate the label I'm giving it is more accurate because I have a much wider range of experience to put it on a, on a scale and and we do say, we use the word, don't we? Oh, I was traumatized by that. You know, just in everyday language, but mm. it's not actually really it's, it's the same thing as we trauma. sometimes say, oh, I'm really OCD about this stuff, if yeah. you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. And yeah. I used to say that myself. And I think that's also part of the yeah, becoming a better practitioner. That's we acknowledge, you know what, I'm not judging that because I did all of that stuff myself before mm -hmm. I learned more, before I started to know better, before I learned that that's not the language in which you should frame things, essentially. And I'm still so far off from having the big picture. I still see new stuff every day. And I'm sometimes still even working with clients. You sometimes 
you don't have the answers for everything. And that's fine. You don't have to have the answers for everything. And I think as singing teachers, and I don't know if that's also something that came up during the pandemic or something with this sort of like so much online stuff and so much professional development. It's this constant quest of having to know more and having to do more and whatever. And maybe sometimes it's just okay to say, you know what, I don't have to know everything. That doesn't mean I'm standing still. I'm still learning, obviously. But I don't need to be in this frenzy to be everything to everyone and all things to all people. I don't need to be my student's counselor. I don't need to be my student's therapist. I don't need to be knowing about everything that could potentially be going on in their lives. That is not my job. It doesn't have to be. I think this is a really interesting byproduct. I really byproduct. want to thank you for yeah, saying absolutely. that. Absolutely. I think this is an interesting byproduct of um, the growth of the internet. Because mm. I think what's happening now is that we are daily exposed to real experts in fields, mm. a real expert in the field of something. Mm. And because we are exposed to so much like that, we assume that we need to be at their level. Mm. And then the same day, we're exposed to an expert in a slightly different field that also overlaps us. And we mm. go, we need to be at that level. And another expert, we go, we need to be at that level. So you're yeah. trying to become an expert in every single field, when what you're actually looking at is an expert in one field who has spent a lifetime doing that. Yes. And so you, you, you're you trying to become a very, very broad ranged person, mm. but the level that you're trying to become is an expert in every field. And you can yeah. feel... And it doesn't work. I no, can't. Can't work. You can't. You can't. To write an article about this. I think you can feel assaulted by this information. Yes. Yep. And, and, you know, suddenly you see this, oh, I should know this. Oh, I'm lacking now because I don't know this. I need to go off and find. I mean, I experienced this when everybody got very excited about neural function and the brain. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't know about this. I'm behind. I'm behind. I'm behind. And um, in the end, I learned what I needed to know in my own good time. Um, and, of course, there's more to learn, and I'm very interested in it. But I don't feel that I've got to sort of push myself in order to be in that place. And I'm really happy that you've said this because I think a lot of the younger singing teachers yeah. really feel this at the moment. It's almost like they have to differentiate themselves with the, the longest possible string of qualifications mm. or the, lo the yeah. biggest, widest area of knowledge at the deepest level. Mm. And they just don't have it. And there's no reason why they should because it's not humanly possible. No, it's not. I mean, I've I've been at this for like what thirty years or something, and it's, it's sort of it's a natural progression sometimes, if you know what I mean. Because I always had an interest in the human psyche, and it was just something that developed quite organically. And if and I know there are other voice coaches, singing teachers out there who are sort of similar in that way, who maybe also started studying psychology or whatever. Mm. And if that's a natural progression and if you feel that's your calling, that's great, if you know what I mean. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Mm. But you don't need to do it all. You just sort of like, if it interests you and you feel like this is what I want to do, that's one thing. But mm. if you think like you have to, like what Jeremy said, um, you you want to have the broad knowledge, but then you try to drill into every tiny aspect of it. 
it's impossible and it's putting so much pressure on people. And it's, uh, I also don't think it really helps the student because it all becomes watered down. There are mm -hmm. experts out there who can do the job. That's why I always say every singing teacher should have this network. And I know it's harder for maybe the people who are mostly private teachers who maybe don't have a massively big network mm. of people around them um, to find that. And that's then obviously where social media can be immensely helpful mm. because you can find those people now and you can say, listen, followed you for a while and I like what you're doing or I like what you have to say. And um, maybe we should, should set up a chat or something because I think I might have some clients who I would like to hand over to you or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't have to be all things to all people. We can have all of that running in the background mm -hmm. to different degrees, depending on what we are as a person as well. Some mm -hmm. people will go psychology, yay. And other people will go like, oh no, go away with it. It's, it's sort of, it's so personal. So um but you don't have to do all that stuff as a singing teacher. I really don't think so. I agree. And I'm again, I'm really happy you've said that. Yes. Should we have another question? I've, I've got a question from yes. Sam. Hi, I'd really like to know if there are any somatic exercises that we could use for ourselves and our students uh, to help conquer nerves before a big performance or a big event. Thank you. <laughs> 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 okay, you have four hours. Off you go. How long have I got? <laughs> yeah, great. Well, it's it's obviously really hard to sort of condense that down, and um, maybe I can just give like one or two little pointers. Um, I mean, somatics are such a big field as well. Um, it's not all one and the same. There are somatic practices which are a bit more mindful. There are somatic practices which are a bit more movement-based and so on and so forth. So um, I would really recommend if this is something that interests you um, to maybe join someone like the Embody Lab um, they have like a yearly membership going on. They have really great somatic practitioners who do regular workshops and um, whatever. So that gives you an idea to dip your toe in if somatic work mm -hmm. is something that interests you. Mm. And if it maybe even interests you so much that you feel like, oh, maybe I look at some sort of deeper training. Mm. Um, having said that, uh, one somatic practice um, that most people wouldn't probably even recognize as one, but it is one, is that when students are very nervous and maybe they're about to go on or whatever, and it's just leading into that situation, um, is to help them to bring up very quickly cues of safety and connection, we call them. Because um, humans have this very... Um, unlucky habit <laughs> to a degree we have negativity bias right so we always zone in on what feels uncomfortable what's not nice what's going wrong and then we try to get rid of it and there's the school of thinking that says that's actually what creates the problem by trying to get rid of it you shine spotlight on it and you make it bigger than it has to be so first of all not trying to get rid of the nerves, but allowing them. Again, physical awareness, all of that stuff, recognizing your body is not your enemy. And instead, 
focusing on cues of safety and connection, whatever they might be for the individual student. That is obviously something um, you can't say it will be like this for everyone. For some people, it could be um, having a photo of a loved one on them that they just look at five minutes before they go on. Um, for someone else, it could be having a chat with someone um, while other people go like, oh, no, I want to be on my own, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, me too. <laughs> So that's very, very individual mm. or having some almost like something to fidget with right before you on, go on, like a little pebble or whatever it might be individual. So something that makes you feel safe. It mm. could also be latching onto a, a body sensation that feels safe. So mm. if you're quite good with, with visualization, for instance, that you bring up a memory in your mind where you felt like this was where I most felt like myself. This was when I was happy. This was when I was calm. Mm. And using those visuals to sort of, yeah, get you to a level where you feel like, oh, this is more comfortable for me. But it's not about shining the light on getting rid of something, but rather making more space for the stuff that's comfortable. Mm -hmm. Another thing that would be a somatic practice, um, again, People just think about um, the body, but um, this is switching sensory channels, actually, when we're nervous. Um, so it's not just necessarily about movement, although that plays into it as well. But if you know, for instance, that if you're nervous, you have a tendency, like me, for instance, I take myself as an example. When I'm nervous, I get very hyper aware of my heart, which it's probably down to my own experience because of that heart condition I have. And um, as a younger performer, not now anymore, but as a younger performer, my legs really started to shake. So if I wore the wrong clothing, you could actually see it. <laughs> and I was very hyper aware of that. And I focused right onto this physical sensation. So this kinesthetic awareness of where I was in space, what my legs were doing, interoceptive, what is my heart doing, if you know what I mean. So if you know that's the case for you, switch the sensory channel, get away from interoception yes. or tuning into your body, latch onto something that you can see or hear. Find five red items in the room listen to what's going on two rooms down the corridor or whatever it might be. If you feel like looking at other people makes you nervous because you feel like, oh, they, they look hostile. They're probably judging me, whatever. Then you're maybe when you're nervous, which is quite natural, your visual sense is quite tuned and quite switched on, which makes evolutionary sense because that's how we perceive danger first by hearing and seeing. So if you feel that is more true to you, then switch from that sensory channel. So if it's comfortable, maybe just close the eyes, black mm -hmm. that out, put headphones on, listen to music, whatever it might be. So get away from the channel that's active, that makes you hone into your nervousness and find a different one that's not so attuned. And then last but not least, movement, always movement. Mm. It's sort of once the adrenaline is in your system, you need to let it run its course. You can't pull it back. It's there. It will burn off usually after 10, 15 minutes, sort of depending on how stressed you are and so on and so forth. So that's it. 
you can speed up that process by mm. doing jumping jacks, running up and down the stairs, if that's possible. Yeah. If you're, of course, just about to go on, you don't want to go on like, <laughs> that makes no sense either. But um, try to have a movement practice, maybe sort of yeah, engage your body periphery in a way, arms and legs. That's three somatic practices these these are great i actually really like that again rather than either suppressing or or going into um speaking for myself i must calm my breathing i must slow my heart rate down no direct direct your um intention or your sensation somewhere else for instance like the ears i think that's fantastic the other thing is um and i learned this from you about nerves which is to move around so um i will march up and down i will pump my arms and uh suddenly i feel less nervous it's sort of dispersed um and i think as well it's knowing you need that energy that you you know that's that your body is getting ready to do its job so rather than trying to suppress it or calm it down you direct it you you channel it i mean that's sort of what you're saying isn't it use another channel yeah yeah I'm really interested in this, I mean, for various reasons, but in the last episode of the podcast, we talked about me doing something that I was more nervous than I have been for years. Mm. And that was doing my first workshop presentation at the Pan-European Voice Conference. Eek! And um, and I got much more nervous than I do doing concerts now. And it was very interesting because I'm recognising some of the things that you've described. There were certain things that I did in order to make myself feel safer which I don't normally do. Um, so there's this one that we we know about and that we do do is that you either before, I mean, as it happened, I wasn't able to be in the space beforehand. It was like you walk on stage and you're on. But it was to, to look at the four walls and go, these four walls belong to me for the next hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a really interesting way of connecting with the building, connecting with your role, all of that. Um, the second thing I did, which I have never done before, uh, I decided because I had a Steinway Concert D £200,000 piano to play, which I didn't know. So that was great. Um, I decided to play the piano and I just sat down before I officially started and I played the piano, which is a very grounding thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I don't normally do that I did was I was going to play, I was playing um, just the opening lines of I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables. And I could not remember the chords. Very funny. So I actually sat down and played the chords, got them wrong three or four times. I never do that in public. But it was I was chatting because I was on microphone. I was chatting to the people in the audience about what I was doing, about mm. playing the chords. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that communication with the people in the audience when I wasn't officially on mm. was a very good way of me going, and now I'm connecting with the audience. So I've connected with the building. Mm. I'm connecting with the audience. I'm sitting comfortably at the piano. So this is my comfort zone. This is nice. Even though I wasn't playing the piano much at all in the workshop. And it was all about getting myself to feel safe before I started. And the moment I started, it's like, I'm here now, I'm on, I know what I'm doing. Presentation's really strong, so I'm good. Yeah, that's safety and connection and action. And sometimes I think we probably have those instincts. We've just buried them. And it's quite interesting how if we're just becoming a bit more attuned to it, how we already do a lot of stuff that is helpful 
and to just trust that, if you know what I mean. Even something that you described there, Jeremy, sort of like talking to the audience and stuff, because I think when we're becoming stressed and when we feel like, oh, I fluffed that or I made a mistake or whatever, we all have the tendency to want to hide that, if you know what I mean, and to go like, oh, I hope no one has seen it. But to actually take the pressure off by saying, oh, yeah, hmm, play the bomb note there or whatever, if you know what I mean. It, it's also really, really helpful or to just reach out to people and connect with them, even if we're not shining a light on what we did. But, um, yeah, I think the, the instincts are all there. We just need to learn to trust them again, I think. I yeah. think you're right. It's giving yourself permission. And actually, yep. I did that with the round table, didn't yes. I? Where yes. before I officially started, I said, let's have a show of hands. You know, who, who in here is a voice scientist? Who's a singing teacher? Blah, blah, blah. And that allowed me to connect with the audience yep. and, and make that bond. We've, Once we've... upon a time, I wouldn't have done that. I'd have been shivering and waiting and then getting ready to do my thing. And I've got to the age now where I think, bugger that whatever exactly um, we have put that video up on the youtube channel so you can actually see Gillian doing that and what is extraordinary is that she sounds so calm and so focused and so in control right from the very beginning when clearly she wasn't mm -hmm. <laughs> so petra we've got one more question and i think in a way you've answered it but why don't we use the first part of jan's question um, yes. Uh, Jan has said, Jan Jenkinson has said, I have a question. What exercises would Petra recommend to help settle or stimulate the vagus nerve? Mm. <laughs> would, you, would you like to comment? I mean, that is also one. I mean, polyvagal theory is, of course, very big in the voice world and is also very big in the therapy world. And I'll always say, um, take what's useful. Don't take everything as gospel. Mm -hmm. As a therapist, I say there are really useful ideas in it as long as you don't take anything as, or everything as biological and uh, scientific truth, if you know what I mean. So um, I think, was that Ian Howell who, count the, uh, who coined the term useful lies or something? I think it was him. Um, there might be a few of those in there. But of course, um, the vagus nerve can be helpful um, to a certain degree. So um, heart rate variability and so on and so forth and um, training our sort of um, vagal system can maybe make sense. I think it's up to you to try if you feel it has any effects. What would help with that, again, is movement, because we know that really helps um, in terms of vagal tone. Um, also things like when we're talking about safety and connection, we brought this thing up. Maybe it has to do um, with the vagus. Maybe it more has to do with the hormones that are being secreted when we're doing that. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. So if you hug people or if you give yourself a hug, that can also be extremely helpful for some people, not for everyone. So I, for instance, know when I'm stressed in general, I don't want anyone near me. If someone tried to hug me, I would just realize, no, <laughs> that wouldn't be for me. Um, and even sort of like self-hugs was never something where I felt like that did a lot for me. But I know it helps some people mm. where we're obviously in that realm again. If it helps some people, what is it actually? Is it placebo? 
Is there some truth about it? Is it hormones? Is it the Vegas? We just don't know. And what definitely has an influence on um, vagal tone and the vagus nerve um, is cold water, Mm. Um, gargling, holding your breath. But that's already in the realm where I would say, be very careful with that. Because if you're someone like me and you maybe have a heart condition, you have to make sure that's actually a safe technique for you to use. You don't no breath want... holding for me. I do yeah. not do it. It does not work. So for me, for instance, it works really well. And I have a technique where I know it's not just the breath holding. It's actually, I need to hold my breath first and then lie down and get my legs up. That immediately stops an episode for me or nine times out of 10. But um, that doesn't work for everyone. So, um, and obviously where the heart is involved, where you're consciously slowing down your heart rate by using a vagal maneuver of sorts. Mm. Um, I don't know. I I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't experiment with um, ice baths, holding your breath, all of these things without having to get the all clear from your doctor first, because that's tampering with a system where you never know what you're actually getting if you're just trying it out of the blue. So I would say stick Stick with the safe stuff, maybe see what sort of safety connections, self-hugging, hugging people, movement, safe movement. So again, if you're exercising, obviously you need to make sure that's okay for you. Um, Gargling is usually also okay. I never felt it did anything for me. But if you directly want to stimulate the vagus nerve, that might be things to try out and look into. But um, yeah. And big sort of caveats and sort of yeah. like, nah. <laughs> and maybe just to be clear, I mean, I'm not going to get into polyvagal theory because I don't pretend to understand it. I know there are lots of different branches. But um, if what we want to do is to kind of get the vagus working to counter our sympathetic system, which is the flight and fight Uh, What we actually need to do is stimulate it, not calm it. So the use of the word calming there, I'm not quite sure um, what Jan meant unless she was talking about the dorsal vagus, which is another aspect as far as I understand. Um, I can share that I've found humming really useful. Mm -hmm. I might put my hands over my ears and hum loudly, sort of more like a chanting kind of hum. And that seems to work better for me than... It is something that's also connected to um, the breath, for instance. So Mm. again, breath from a trauma-informed standpoint, Mm. always obviously careful when you're suggesting that to students because we take so much for granted in the studio. Mm. Um, We always say like closing eyes, focusing on the breath directly and so on and so forth can be triggering Mm. for some people. But if you know you're in the all clear that is exactly sort of the stimulation of the vagus you want to look at, so to speak. And Peter Levine, for instance, the father of somatic therapy, almost um, does something he calls voo breathing. Um, 
where you're sort of like intoning like a really deep sound, if you know what I mean. And you're just exhaling on it, essentially. And you're just going to and make it resonate, if you know what I mean. So, um, and that some people find that really helpful. Some people also actually get quite emotional when they're doing that, when they sort of find the, yeah, let's call it right frequency. Mm. And they feel like something is being set in motion and some blocks start to move or whatever. Um, so that's quite interesting that you're mentioning the humming there, essentially, with the direct stimulation as in terms of, yeah, holding breath, cold water splashes might be helpful for some people. Mm. Um, if you're thinking about the ice bath, I would already say, yeah. <laughs> just ease yourself and slowly don't do everything at once, essentially. <laughs> turn, turn the shower down. I'm sorry, I've just had an image. Quite literally. <laughs> easing themselves. Yeah. Yeah, turn, turn the shower down after your shower. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of gradually go from lukewarm to cold. That That's a good way to start. And actually, I do that. Yeah. We could really call this episode Know Yourself. Mm. Yeah. Because totally. everything that you're saying is here are a range of things that are possible, but know yourself first so that you know which ones are going to work for you, which ones aren't, and also be aware of, of when things have an effect on you and when they don't. Mm-hmm. Yes. Love that. I'm really glad Jan asked that question because that's another one. It's out there, isn't it? Must do mm-hmm. this for Vegas nerve, must do that, must do, you know, whatever. And actually understanding what it does is... Mm, part of it well that's another conversation and um, what do you want to flag though we haven't given you how that do we find you well you find me on the internet i have my socials obviously as well so if you look for either petra borzinski or singingsense.com that's my web page and um, all my socials are on there um so that's how you find me you're, you're in you're in scotland now you're in dumbarton yes. which yes. is just underneath Loch Lomond. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I have the good spot right between Glasgow and Loch Lomond. So to either side, I can go. If I want the city, I can go to Glasgow. And if right. I want nature, I can just venture out there. So it's a good space to be in. So yeah, and that's where you I am. You have a very nice online course for self-study, don't you, that I'm actually yeah. engaged in now. Tell us what it's called. Um, it's called Mental Health in the Performing Arts Studio. Mm. So that was born out of, I did a webinar series um, in 2021. And um, there were many, many people in it, but hardly anyone attended live as sort of happens these days with webinars. And um, sort of most people watched it back after the fact. And I thought, well, I might as well just put that on a course platform and make it available for people. And there's a lot of the stuff in it that we talked about today in more detail, obviously, about professional boundaries, mm-hmm. how to become more trauma aware, a big block on performance anxiety, um, mental health for performers in general, and so on and so forth. So that's really quite comprehensive. So there's like five big modules in it, also one about acceptance and commitment coaching. So where you can use safe strategies that are not sort of like encroaching on the therapy territory. So like really safe strategies um, for the studio, basically. And I also have a, 
couple of um, mini courses because I know that some people's interest is more singular, if you know what I mean. It's maybe just performance anxiety or something like that. So that's out there as well. That's something you'll find on my webpage and constantly keeping on working, of course, have something else in the pipeline about sort of like, yeah, recovery after vocal injury, but that's not quite finished yet, which looks more at the mental aspect of it. So looking... We'll put put the links in the show notes for those courses. And the mental health in the studio is a great place for people to start if they're not familiar with this work. And that's really important, I think. This is really just... um, a starting point. And I'm always really keen to say that that's for the person who wants to know, where do I even begin? And that doesn't qualify you to do anything, neither to do therapy, nor to um, become a counsellor, or it doesn't even make you trauma-informed. It makes you more trauma-aware. If you then decide you want to be a trauma-informed practitioner, then you will go down that path further. So it's really just a jump-off point. And in my view, that's all it should be. (laughs) <laughs> much needed yeah. it sounds like we are going to have a lot more conversations uh, like this this has been fascinating thank you so much it's brilliant petra i'm so pleased we were able to do this and able to do it today yes yes and thank you so much for having me i've been so looking forward to this i've been sort of like itching to talk to you <laughs> oh same same thank you petra that's wonderful. been wonderful okay see well, you next time thank you so much bye bye, bye. <laughs> This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.